Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study uh, tonight, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so that if you need to make sure you're in fellowship, you can use 1 John 1, 9. If not, then uh, you can begin to orient yourself to study the word, and I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together tonight to be refreshed by the teaching of your word. For it is your word that provides us with the stability and the orientation to life. And as we look at our world around us and see so many things changing so rapidly and so many signs of uh, uh, things to come that are uh, seem to threaten many aspects of our lives related to rise of prices, inflation, politics, wars and rumors of wars, we know that you are in control and that none of these things are new or none of these things are different and that your plan is working itself out. And it is our our job in your plan to focus on your word and to let your word uh, work in us under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to produce uh, spiritual maturity that we may be faithful witnesses for you in this uh, constantly changing world. We pray that as we study your word tonight that we might be encouraged, refreshed by things we've studied before, reminded of these eternal truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in our last couple of lessons in 1 Kings, as we've looked at Solomon's failure because of his inability to pass the prosperity test, I came to a conclusion on the prosperity test last week where I wanted our last lesson, rather, which was a month ago. I had to actually go back and listen to the last 15 minutes so I figured out what I was teaching and where I, where I ended. But we were, I was focusing on the problem-solving devices or how God, the, the principles that God has given us to face and handle any situation in life, whether those are good situations or bad situations. And prosperity refers to the times in our life when uh, we are blessed by God with very positive things, whether it has to do with uh, financial things or material things, or whether it has to do with friends or family, whatever it may be, prosperity has to do with the presence and the abundance of uh, the details of life that make life very enjoyable for us. Adversity, on the other hand, has to do with the absence of those things or the uh, threatened loss of those things in our life. And in either situation, we, ha- we are tested because in the presence of those details of life, we run the risk of distraction, we run the risk of losing focus, having our priorities shift, we run the risk of having our time consumed by 
the things that we have or the success that comes our way. Many people often dream of having great prosperity, but with that prosperity comes additional responsibility. With that prosperity comes additional possessions. And as someone once says, we soon learn that the things we own really own us. And we have more and more things to do just to keep track of and to take care of everything. We have to paint it, mow it, repair it, fix it, take all of those things. And those all are part of the prosperity test. And as our time uh, begins to be taken up by these things, then it's a challenge to us in the realm of priority to keep our focus on the Lord and keep our focus on uh, Bible doctrine and to continue to study and grow. It seems like it's easier for us to keep that focus when things are threatened, when we don't have much, when we're afraid that we won't be able to pay the bills or we don't have a job or our health is threatened. It's uh, those times when we are motivated by fear and anxiety and worry that it's easy for us to keep our focus on the Word. So there's different dimensions to each of these tests, but the solution is always the same. And these basic skills that I'm going to review tonight, and one of the reasons I want to do this is to try to get this all in maybe, I'm hoping, one lesson, maybe two, because I think it's just a good summary that should be available in a one-lesson type of format, that as we look at these various spiritual skills, they basically have are, are a distillation of a lot of different things that the Bible teaches about the spiritual life. And by distilling them down into these ten, whether you call them problem-solving devices, I've called them stress busters, spiritual skills, each of these terms emphasizes a slightly different dimension to what these things are. They are problem-solving devices in the sense that any time we have to make a volitional decision that's in relation to either choosing to apply doctrine or not, that is a problem in a classic sense of the problem, not problem in the sense of an adversity, but just as you were um, you were in, coming up in uh, grade school, in elementary school, you had to solve various math problems. It's a set of circumstances that de- demand, demand and deter- de- uh, depend upon a certain resolution, and you have a choice to make. And that is why it's a problem. It may be a good situation, it may be a bad situation, but it demands the application of certain things in order to move through those circumstances in a way that honors and glorifies God. It is a stress buster because when we are focused on the Lord, stress is minimized, and we have peace and stability no matter how uh, unstable and uncertain the circumstances are around us. We can relax and rest in God. And they are spiritual skills because they have to be practiced and practiced and practiced and developed just like any other skill. So we begin this by looking at the question, what protects your soul in times of testing? Because all of these circumstances, whether they're positive or negative, bring pressure on our soul if we are not applying the Word of God at that particular time. So we could title the lesson, The Soul Fortress, Protecting Your Soul from the Attacks of Sin, the Cosmic System, and the Devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the three enemies that every believer faces. The sin comes from the inside. The outside, we have the rationales and the systems of thought that Satan 
uh, promotes, which have an affinity to our sin nature. We learn from our peers and our teachers and our friends and our parents all kinds of ways to justify, rationalize uh, things that really appeal to our sin nature. And then, of course, ultimately our enemy is is the devil. And I il- introduced this the last time, new diagram of the uh, of the soul fortress. And the way to enter into this fortress is through a confession of sin. And when our soul is inside the fortress, then we are protected by these principles, these doctrines, these realities that God has provided for us, the foundations, the filling of the Spirit. We add, and one of the reasons I put this together the way I have is because spiritual growth is dynamic, as we'll see in a minute. It comes in different ways, different stages. Everybody grows differently. You may come into a Bible study and begin to learn something about uh, love for God. You may be learning something about occupation with Christ, and you're just a baby believer. And we gr- growth doesn't take place in a static manner. Growth doesn't take place in an even manner. It doesn't follow the path of logic, although for academic purposes we think these things through in terms of their logical relationship. So we build these different blocks in the in the soul fortress, the faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, personal sense of destiny, personal love for God, personal love for mankind, occupation with Christ, and inner happiness. And all of this provides that protection for our soul. So we'll start with four basic principles just to orient to the doctrine. First of all, construction of the soul fortress takes a lifetime. And you don't see it. I mean, this is just the imperceptible reality of edification in our soul. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the fact that Scripture is designed to edify the believer. And this has the idea of building up or strengthening our soul. And what strengthens our soul are the principles from the Word of God. And this takes a lifetime. It has to be a priority. Second thing that we should note is that the construction is piecemeal and dynamic. It's just a little here, a little there. Every time you study the Word, doctrines are either confirmed they are either presented new, you gain some new insight, the Holy Spirit uses it in a new way, but it's just a little bit here, a little bit there, and it's a continuous, ongoing process. And it's dynamic because we're learning in the context of the laboratory of real life. And so it doesn't follow a set course. You don't do one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And I don't know how many people have come to me and said, you know, that was just such a such an eye-opening experience to realize that I don't have to uh, master the faith rest drill before I can go on to doctrinal orientation, and I don't have to master doctrinal orientation before I go on to grace orientation. Those are just the the logical relationships, but we, we, it's like building a house. If you look at a house in your neighborhood going in, one week the electrician gets to one house first, and the next week the plumber gets there, house on the other block, the plumber gets there first, and then the electrician gets there the next week, depending on how things go. So growth is, is it's, it's messy, it's, it's erratic, it's, it's, it doesn't flow in set logical patterns. 
although the principles are underlying it are logically connected. Third thing we note is that the utilization of the spiritual skills enables us to stay inside the fortress. As we practice these skills, when we face adversity or prosperity, we stay inside the fortress, which is the same thing as staying in fellowship. And when we stop applying these principles or utilizing these skills, then what happens is we start living on the basis of the sin nature. We start living on the basis of human viewpoint uh, strategies and techniques to make life work. And so as long as we face the uh, adversities of life, the vagaries of life using these spiritual skills, we stay in fellowship, we stay inside the fortress. Failure to use the, sk- the skills, we're outside, we're under control of the sin nature, and therefore vulnerable to damage from the sin, the world, and the devil. And fourth, when we fail to utilize the spiritual skills, we default. It's a fallback position to the arrogant skills, and these really are the polar opposites. We're either operating and developing the arrogant skills or the we're operating on the spiritual skills. So what are the arrogant skills? Just a brief review, self-absorption. Arrogance always starts with self-absorption, and we live in a world today, don't we, where people are more self-absorbed than ever before. They don't. We live in a world where people have not grown up having to take care of responsibilities or responsibilities for others, as opposed to 100 or 200 years ago, especially when, and especially in America, when most people were living on the farm and children had responsibilities as soon as they could uh, handle them. And in many cases, as they were old enough to go out and take care of farm animals and other things, they were... Uh, they had to take on those those important tasks, and so the folk they could never had time to sit around and focus on their own personal needs. And we've developed a therapeutic culture, or a therapeutic aspect to our culture in the last uh, 150 years that reinforces self-absorption. And again and again and again. You, people have to take care of themselves. How many times do we hear that? But that's not a biblical principle. That's a that's a distortion, and it is a focus on just your, the individual and, and being absorbed with self, and leads to self indulgence and the focus on on whatever we want, and that leads to self justification, a shift in our whole view of ethics and standards, and then. Uh, that leads to self-deception. It furthers the whole reorientation in our mind of reality. The unbeliever and the carnal believer wants to reshape the external world so that it's not the world God says it is, but it's the world that we want it to be. We want it to march to our tune and not follow the, the patterns that God has established. And then this, of course, is self-deification. We want to be the ultimate authority. And we practice these skills over and over and over again. And by the time you're four years old, you've mastered it. You've got a Ph.D. in arrogance, probably earlier than that. But we don't ever quite talk about it that way. So the pattern for the spiritual life is to be able to identify these things on the one hand, and that's the part of the exercise we go through with confession of sin. Because in the practice, in the practice of confession of sin, we are training ourselves to identify these arrogance patterns 
that we see in our soul. When you've been a believer for a few years you begin, and you're growing spiritually, you begin to see more and more ways in which the arrogance of your sin nature is really dictating the policies and directions of your own life. So the spiritual skills have to be learned and developed in contrast to the arrogant skills. So the foundation has to do with the filling of the Spirit. Now, this is really the second spiritual skill. But we're going to talk about it first. The first one is how we become filled with the Spirit. But when you're first saved, you're automatically filled with the Spirit. The Spirit indwells the believer. You're baptized by the Spirit. All of those ministries related to the Holy Spirit are your possession instantly at the moment you put your faith alone in Christ alone. And then what happens is within the first two, three, four, five seconds, you sin. Then you're out of fellowship. You're outside of the soul fortress. You're no longer operating on the direction of God the Holy Spirit. So the foundation is the filling of the Holy Spirit. I touched on this last time, and I want to break it down a little more this time. It's the filling of the Spirit, which is a passive concept. The command in Ephesians 5.18 is to be filled. That is a passive imperative. That means that someone else performs the action. The subject of the command, which is you and, and I, the subject receives the action. So we are to be filled, but the flip side of that, which is really addressed to your ongoing moment-by-moment volition, is to walk by the Spirit. That's a present active imperative which engages our volition more directly as we have to actively walk in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. Now, just a few general principles. First of all, at salvation, every believer is indwelt and filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And it's so important to understand that this terminology, in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, is, is instrumental. That means he's the means for leading the spiritual life. It is not that you're filled with the Spirit, getting more as the content. See, some, this is the trouble with translating the Greek because the Greek uses a Greek preposition in or en in the Greek actually, and it can mean in, in, with, or by. And it has a range of meaning, and you have to decide whether it uh, has a what would be called a locative sense or whether it has an instrumental sense. And this is part of the process of exegesis, comparing uh, other passages, similar passages, to come to an understanding of just what the emphasis is there, especially in the parallel in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 5.18. So at salvation, every believer is indwelt, which is permanent, by the Holy Spirit, and filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not the Spirit that fills us, just like I have my coffee mug up here. It's filled with coffee. Coffee is the content of the filling. But I used a coffee pot back in the kitchen as the means of filling the cup. So there's a difference between the content and the means. And the Holy Spirit is the means, the instrument by which we are filled, but it's the Word of God that's the content of the filling. And it's the Word of God that that is then used in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. Now, whatever is done under the power, and you have these different terms that are used in the Bible that are 
roughly synonymous or they look at just different facets of the same same thing, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, being filled by the Spirit. These are all terms, walking in the light, walking in the truth. These are all terms that are that are expressing the same idea from slightly different vantage points. So it's salvation. Every believer is indwelt and filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Second point, whatever is done in the power of the Holy Spirit then is gold, silver, and precious stones has eternal value. At the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, all of our works, that's all of our production, everything that we do, good and bad, is evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. That which is done in the power of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the Word of God has enduring value and is called gold, silver, and precious stones. That which is destroyed or burned up at the uh, judgment seat of Christ is called wood, hay, and straw. It has no eternal value. It's the product of our own uh, our own abilities, our own flesh. It may be morality. It may be ethical. Uh, we may pray, read our Bible, witness, do all kinds of things in the power of the flesh, and it has no eternal value whatsoever. So in the doctrine of the filling and walking by means of the Spirit, we realize that God the Holy Spirit is the primary means of empowerment and enablement for the spiritual life, but the Holy Spirit doesn't operate alone. He always operates in conjunction with the Word of God. When you put the emphasis on the Holy Spirit apart from the Word of God, you end up in mysticism. You put the emphasis on the Word of God and forget the Holy Spirit, you end up in legalism. And that's and you go to most churches and you end up in one or the other. You either have all of this uh, emphasis on the Holy Spirit and living by the Spirit, and we're going to the Holy Spirit tells me to do this and told me to do that and woke me up in the middle of the night to do this and everything's the Holy Spirit. And then you go to other churches and they never ever mention the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of Bible study, but there's no understanding of the dynamics of walking by the Spirit. And this is, um, has, was been a real tragedy in the history of the church. There's never been a, there hasn't been a systematic or there wasn't a systematic development of this doctrine until really the late 19th century. And at the same time, at the end of the 19th century, that the, the role of the Holy Spirit is really beginning to be thought out. And I don't mean that people did never know how to walk by the Spirit. They did never do it before then. They did. They just, it hadn't been thought out yet. Those of you who are in the History of Doctrine course understand what I mean, that in the early church, they did things that people would confess their sins and whether they understood the connection between confession and walking by the Spirit or the filling of the Spirit, if they confessed their sins, they would uh, still be filled with the Spirit. And so people were doing it in haphazard manner, but it wasn't until the 19th century that you get a return emphasis to the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, like it does in like it other doctrines, it comes out of some of these questions came out of uh, really distorted theological movements and for wrong reasons. And it led to the holiness movement, the Pentecostal movement, a lot of um, just mystical, errant stuff on the Holy Spirit, but it was in that context that you had people like C.I. Schofield and Louis Berry Chafer 
and a number of others really began to clarify uh, the, this, this relationship that the spiritual life for the church-age believer is uniquely dependent upon God the Holy Spirit, but he always works with the Word. So part of his role is to help us understand, retain, remember, and apply doctrine. Colossians 3.15 gives a parallel passage, a parallel command to the command in Ephesians 5.18, but in Colossians 3.15, the command is to uh, walk, excuse me, that should be Colossians 3.16. The command is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. But the same results come from letting the word of Christ dwell within you as being filled by the Spirit. So that's where we put things together that it's the Holy Spirit who fills us with something, and the something he fills us with is the Word. And he helps us to understand, retain, remember, and apply Bible doctrine. He is the one who produces spiritual growth. We don't produce it. We exercise our volition to study the Word, go to Bible class, be in fellowship, uh, uh, all of those things. But once we internalize the Word... It's the Holy Spirit's job to produce the growth. And the, there's a great analogy with eating. It's your job to decide what you're going to eat. If you're going to have a diet of bluebell ice cream or whether you're going to have a diet of health food one, or anywhere in between, you decide what you're going to put into your mouth and how much of it you're going to put into your mouth. But once you swallow it, there are involuntary metabolic uh, processes that automatically take over, break down the food into various chemicals. The blood uh, transports that to the muscles. You get the development of, of your um, uh, musculature your, and, and everything involved with that. And then you have another decision to make, whether or not you're going to be a couch potato or whether you're going to stay in shape or somewhere in between. And that's the way it is spiritually as the Holy Spirit breaks it down and produces growth, then that leads to application. And it's up to us whether we're going to be spiritual couch potatoes and just learn a lot of of doctrine or whether we're going to begin to apply it in different ways. So it's the Holy Spirit who produces the spiritual growth, but we have to take the time to think about it, learn it, think about it, and apply it. He's the one who enables us to use our spiritual gift. He gives us a spiritual gift at the time that we are regenerated. And then as we mature, he makes that evident and we operate. And you may not even know what your spiritual gift is. A lot of Christians don't, especially if it's in the area of helps or administration, something like that that's a little broader general category. But yet it can, it can involve many different ways of, uh, of applying that gift. Key verses are Ephesians 5.18, where there is the contrast between being drunk with wine, and the with wine there is not talking about content per se. It's talking about means again. It's the same kind of construction you have in the second half of the verse. Don't get drunk by means of wine. We've talked about this before, that in Ephesus, and in Ephesus there was, when we were just there, uh, I learned a couple of things new about this. The theater there in Ephesus, which is one of the largest and best recovered theaters in uh, the ancient world, was dedicated to the god Dionysius, who is the uh, god of wine. 
And so there's a very heavy presence of Dionysian worship in Ephesus. And there was a temple there to him as well. And as part of the process of the worship of Dionysius, people would go out, go up into the groves with the priestesses of Dionysius who were called Menads, and they would get drunk on wine. And it was, wine was a means to having fellowship and harmony with the God. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, don't operate like, the, like you did in your pagan past, thinking that wine is the means to spirituality. It's the Holy Spirit who is the means of spirituality. So you're to be filled by means of the Spirit rather than uh, wine. So he's talking about means. It's not talking about control. And yet that's probably what you were taught, what you heard over many, many years, is that the comparison here was control. It's not control. It's not content. It's means. And it's the Holy Spirit that's the means of the spiritual life. This is parallel to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It is the Spirit of God plus the word of God, not one in isolation from the other, but together that produce spiritual growth. And Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by means of the Spirit. Well, how do you know if you're walking by means of the Spirit? Well, if you develop out the rest of the passage in Galatians 5.16 to 26, you realize that by walking by the Spirit emphasizes a step-by-step procedure. We're told a couple of verses later we are led by the Spirit. Well, if somebody's leading me, that means they're setting out a path or a course in front of me. To follow someone, they have to be laying out that course. The course that the Holy Spirit has laid out is the Word of God. And then you have another word used that's translated walking by the Spirit later on, which has that idea of a step, of a step by step, uh, or following a, a pattern of taking, a, a, of a, following a path that's already laid out. So these three passage to, passages understood together give us the core understanding of the dynamics of the spiritual life and the role of the Holy Spirit for the believer. So that's the filling of the Holy Spirit. But how do we get into that soul fortress when we've sinned? Because when we sin, it breaches fellowship, breaks fellowship, we're ejected from the uh, soul fortress. And the way to get back in is through confession of sin. And we have to recognize, first of all, that Christ's death on the cross provides the basis for all forgiveness. That's 1 John 1, 7. That the blood of Christ, that's a metaphor for the death of Christ on the cross, everything that he did for us, the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. That is a positional statement. At the instant you and I trust Christ as Savior, we are cleansed of all sin, positionally. We are positionally sanctified. But... 1 John 1 9 then says that we have to confess our sins. Well, if 1 John 1 7 means that, well, you're automatically cleansed of sin experientially, then why does John say two verses later you need to confess your sins in order to be cleansed? Well, he must be talking, the only way to explain it is he's either psychotic or he's talking about two different aspects of cleansing. One is positional and one is experiential. So we, ad- we confess our sin, which is simply to admit to the wrongdoing. 
So cleansing must be understood to be the key term. And as we've gone through our study in Hebrews on Thursday night, looking at the ritual in Israel, we understand that cleansing has to do with the fact that as a a person coming into the holy presence of God, having that relationship with him, there has to be cleansing of sin. So there's after salvation, there has to be ongoing cleansing in order to for the believer to be experientially sanctified. Two key verses for confession of sin are 1 John 1, 9, and from the Old Testament, Psalm 66, 18, that if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And this tells us that prayer doesn't go anywhere if we're not, if we have sin in our life. And we're not going anywhere spiritually with sin in our life. And it's amazing how many people just haven't put all of this together. In fact, I had a conversation just, uh, I guess it was uh, maybe Saturday afternoon with an old friend of mine. And we were going through all of this ground. He was asking me some questions on uh, on the spiritual life. And he's he and I went to seminary together and we're old friends. And we were talking this through, and he said, you know, and I went back and I went through First John, just pointed out a number of things, and we've had these conversations over and over again for 30 years. And he said, you know, I really made a serious mistake teaching First John when I was first out of seminary because I just completely messed the whole book up because nothing that was in print in terms of commentaries, or at least 90% of what was in print, came from sort of a lordship, hyper-Calvinist viewpoint. And uh, now, after years of study and everything, he said, he, he was just commenting, he said, I think you've really put things together in a little fresher way than the old Campus Crusade view, which he had been influenced by, which taught a control aspect of the Holy Spirit. And it never made sense to a lot of people. And some of you heard that uh, when you were young or first a believer, that if you Confess your sins, you're going to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And you think, well, okay, if I'm contro- I've confessed my sin, if I'm being controlled by the Holy Spirit, why, am, why do I have these thoughts and say these things, and how do I get out, why am I sinning? He's supposed to be controlling me. So it, it just didn't seem to work, and there was this mystical element to it that just didn't work. And so by putting the focus on on the Spirit as the means and the Word of God as the content, it really clarifies and tightens all of this. So we come to our first two stress busters, first two spiritual skills, confessing sin and being filled by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. Those two things go together, filling and walking. There just wasn't room on the on the slide to put them in uh, together. Then the next step is learning to trust God on a day-to-day basis in terms of the situations we face, learning to put our faith in the Lord and resting in his provision. And we get a definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, of course, is considered the great chapter on faith, and we'll get there eventually in our study in Hebrews. But in verse 1 we read, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith doesn't operate after we're dead. Because when you die, you're face-to-face with the Lord, and we're seeing the heavenly reality face-to-face. 
So faith is only operational during our time in phase two, our time on earth. So faith is the substance of things uh, hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse three, by faith we understand. Faith is a means of knowledge. It is not in opposition to knowledge. That's what modern man has said since the Enlightenment, that faith is irrational and knowledge is based on empiricism. That is the uh, that is the hidden definition in the way modern man views knowledge, so that belief in something can't be understood as knowledge. So to define the faith rest drill, it's the believer trusting God to fulfill his promises. God will do what he says to do. Uh, relying upon biblical principles, verses, uh, images, stories, and thinking them through so that we get in certain circumstances and we think, well, who was it in the Bible who faced similar circumstances? How did they handle it? What were they thinking? What principles, Bible verses, uh, were emphasized in that situation? So the believer trusts God to fulfill his promises, relies upon biblical principles, and thinks through doctrinal rationales, reasoning through the Scripture. And it results in a relaxed mental attitude because we know God takes care of the situation. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. And because God cares for you, we can put it in his hands and relax because no matter what the outcome is, he's in control. So we can be like the uh, three friends of Daniel who are going to be thrown into the fiery furnace and we can look at the situation and say, well, I'm not going to bow down to the idol. Uh, even if you slay me, God can deliver me. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to do it. We can relax knowing that God's going to take care of the situation, whether that brings something that would be considered negative upon us or not. You may trust God, lose your job, lose your home, lose all your money, lose everything you have and live under a bridge. But that's God's plan for your life. Now, that's a radical theology. If I'm going to obey God, I'm going to live out under a bridge. But you're still going to be alive, and God's still going to sustain you. Look at what happened to Job. Job's out there outside the city gates, which he was a homeless person at that point, with all of these physical body sores and health problems, and he's out there uh, in such pain that he's taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping his skin just to try to alleviate the pain a little bit. And then his friends come out there, and they all wag their finger at him, basically, and say, it's all your fault. And Job knows it's not his fault, and God clued us into that in the first two chapters by repeating it several times, that Job was an honorable, upright man, and and he was blameless in all of his ways. So just because you do everything right doesn't mean you're going to get the result you think you should have. But that's because it's God's plan, and so we can just relax whether that takes us in one direction or another. Hebrews 4.2, uh, in reference to the Exodus generation states, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. That's the key verse for, for the faith rest drill, is we mix our faith with the promises of God. 
Another is one I just quoted a minute ago, 1 Peter 5, 7. Another good promise is uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He will straighten things out and take you where he wants you to go, not necessarily where you think you ought to go. Okay, that gives us the faith rest drill. We've gone through the first three spiritual skills, and now the fourth one is grace orientation. Grace orientation, I think, is one of the most difficult concepts for people to get their hand around because it runs completely counter to your whole self-absorbed, arrogant nature. And we live in a world that operates on a tit-for-tat policy that everything is based on works and performance, but grace is never based on works or performance. Grace is based on the character of God. And when I'm being grace-oriented to other people, it's not, I think it's a misnomer to say, I'm going to treat people on the basis of who and what I am. You don't want that. I'm going to treat people on the basis of who and what God is. That's my pattern. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. See, that's the focal point, is looking at who Jesus Christ is. And so grace orientation is patterning our responses to all those uh, idiots and dolts around us on the pattern of his grace. Jesus, you know, it's interesting, the only people he really called an idiot or adult actually he called him a fool, were the legalists, the religious crowd who were, who were just cemented in negative volition already. And he was <clears throat> challenging their uh, idiot interpretations of Scripture. Anyway, grace orientation, first of all, it's conforming or aligning our thinking. And it's not just our thinking, it's, it's our it's our whole way in which we relate to people and circumstances. Uh, our thinking toward people, situations, and events with God's grace policy. We're going to treat people in the highest and best way possible, no matter how undeserving and unworthy and rotten they are. Not because they deserve it, but because they don't deserve it. Because this is how God treats us. We're just as much the recipients of this same attitude from God as the worst sinners that we can think of. Second, grace means that God has freely given us everything we need on the basis of who he is and what Christ did on the cross. He, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to wait until you grow a little bit, I'm going to give you a little more. When you grow a little bit more, then I'll give you a little more. Wait till you're wor- worthy of it. He did everything for us while we were yet sinners. Grace means that God will freely give to us everything we need in our spiritual life. He gives us prosperity tests, adversity tests, everything we need in order to mature us and to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And last, grace means that our relationship to God is not based on merit, activities, or actions. So we are responding to his grace, but we're not trying to manipulate his grace. Key passages for this are Second Peter 1, 3, and 4, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not some things, not most things, but everything. 
Verse 4, for by these, that is by his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us, that's a grace word meaning to give freely, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And that draws a connection between grace orientation back to the faith rest drill. Academically, we separate these things out individually, but they're all interconnected. When you're operating on grace, you're also utilizing the faith rest drill, and you're applying doctrine, which is the next uh, spiritual skill, both of which are mentioned in 2 Peter 3.18. We grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another good verse on grace orientation is 2 Corinthians 12.9. God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected, in weakness. So we add our uh, fourth skill, grace orientation, our second tower on the, uh, on the soul fortress. Then we come to the halfway point, doctrinal orientation. This is when we align our thinking to the plan and purposes of God and his word. This takes a lifetime to, to wrestle with what God tells us in his word, to understand these things. And even when we think we do, and you've been in church 5, 10, 15 years, and you've learned a lot, and you reach sort of a, a plateau where you're saying, you know, I'm not really learning that much new. But what's happening is you're re- reminded of a lot of things you've forgotten, and we need to hear it over and over and over again and so that we don't forget it. We constantly need that, uh, that encouragement and that review. We, doctrinal orientation, by definition, is to align our thinking to the reality of God's word, God's creation, and God's plan. We must understand that doctrine must become a way of life. If you haven't reached that point, then you're still a spiritual infant. Doctrine is life. That's it, period. Our walk with the Lord isn't just something we do, like we have a job and we have a family and we have hobbies, but doctrine glues it all together. Without it, everything else is irrelevant. And so a lot of times as you grow as a believer, you begin to have to make choices, and you realize a lot of things that we really love to do and really enjoy doing, we just don't do anymore because, you know, it's more important for me to learn the Word and to apply the Word because when, I, when I'm when i 60, I'm not going to be able to do all those things anymore when I'm 70 or when I'm 80. And the only thing I'm going to have is the Word of God in my soul, so I need to get that now. So, third point, doctrine includes the entire realm of Bible teaching, from what we would call the abstract to the intensely practical. We live in a world, in Western civilization, that has made this false bifurcation in knowledge. But true truth that is abstract, in its abstract form, is intensely practical, or it's not true. And anything that is practical has to be understood from its theoretical, and by that I mean its more abstract foundation. Otherwise, when you get into the circumstances, you don't really understand why you're doing what you're doing. You're just following a road set of steps, but you don't understand the real reason you're doing what you're doing. And that's why when you study Paul and you read Ephesians or you read Philippians or you read Galatians, often what you have in these these epistles that are written for very practical purposes to solve problems and challenges and 
and divisions in, in local churches. He starts off with three pages of doctrine before he ever starts talking about the practical issue. Because if you don't understand that, that theoretical theological framework, then it doesn't matter. You know, he's not going to tell you just go out and this is what you do, to do these five steps. And yet that's what we see in so many of our churches today is the sermon series are based on five ways to have a happy marriage, six ways to do this, seven ways to have more joy in your life. But they don't teach you anything about the kind of thinking that undergirds that. And so it's, they're building straw houses on foundations of sand. And when the winds of adversity blow, and they are going to be blowing in this country and Western civilization, uh, in incredible ways in the coming years. Now, we're just beginning to see uh, some of the problems now related to the, you know, what's happened with the dollar, what's happening with uh, the cost of fuel, and how this is going to reverberate down through so many areas of our life. I think things are going to be radically different because of the way things are going. And as believers, we're the only ones who have stability and answer, and we can relax and... and uh, and have a proper mental attitude. Fourth, doctrine teaches us how to think, how to react, so that when something happens, we, we react differently. Our mind is engaged differently. Doctrine teaches us how to problem solve, how to think it through, how to prioritize, how to relate to the world, to the systems around us, the people and all the circumstances of life. And we have to know the whole realm of doctrine. Key verse, 2 Peter 3.18, we grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world, that is the thinking of the culture around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may demonstrate what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we're transformed by overhauling our mind, we're living on a new set of principles, a new way of thinking, then the result is our lives provide evidence that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so we became, become a testimony and a witness in the angelic conflict. And so this provides the fifth spiritual skill, and we have three towers up. Now it's five minutes to nine, and I'm halfway through, so I'm going to stop here. That makes it nice for next time. We'll finish it up. We'll just stop here, come back with number six next time, and begin to work through the more advanced spiritual skills that are all built on these uh, more basic spiritual skills. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things. We pray that you would challenge us with the importance of knowing your word and that knowing your word isn't the end result. It's simply a means to having a closer relationship with you, understanding who you are, understanding what you have done for us, what you've provided for us, and realizing that it is that close, personal walk with you based on the knowledge of who you are, which we get from your word, that enables us to, to live through the, the storms of life, to live through the uh, wonderful blessings of life that you give us. And it is only when we're walking with you that we have the stability in our souls to truly enjoy and appreciate all that you have for us, whether that is, is, is related to adversity or prosperity. Father, we just continue to pray for this church, for this congregation, that we might be a steadfast testimony to your 
grace and to the importance of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.